A reading from the letter to the Hebrews. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic elements of the oracles of God. You need milk not for solid food, for everyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is unskilled in the word of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties have been trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us go on toward perfection, leaving behind the basic teaching about Christ and not laying again on the foundation. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Even though we speak in this way, beloved, we are confident for better things in your case, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not overlook your work and the love you have showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we want each and every one of you to show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the very end, so that you may not become sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. When Lindsay and I first got married, she was a bit of a gym rat. Is that unfair? That seems, that seems real. And when we first got married, we worked for the YMCA, which came with a free gym membership. And so we were newly married, and we would just go, and we had time in the middle of the day due to our work schedules, and we would work out most days a week. And mostly she was, you know, spotting me and giving me tips and helping me learn how to do this thing. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm not the most athletic fellow. And then I got a new job, and so did she, and so we didn't have that free membership. And so for a few years, I didn't really go to the gym at all. And then uh, a big box gym was built in our neighborhood, and so we decided to join. So in we went. She went over to do her thing. I went over to the bench press, put on the weight that I had been benching before, which was just stunning, you guys. You have no idea. And I put it up, and I came down, and it stayed there. <laughs> now, I'm a man. I'm not going to call out for help in a big box gym. And it was like opening day. There was like nobody there. So instead, I'm stage whispering, Lindsay, Lindsay, the bar's on my face, Lindsay. And my beautiful, strong wife came over and helped me lift the bar off my face. I hadn't kept up my practice. I thought that I could just come in and do the thing that I'd been doing years before, but I couldn't. I needed to go back to the beginning. Our text in Hebrews this evening is pretty painfully point-blank, and I think it has much to say to us in our present state. The writer tells his group of readers, these Christians, that they are like little, tiny babies. The thing about babies is that they're super cute, they smell amazing, they're so chubby and cuddly and all of that, but the point of being a baby is to become a toddler. 
And the point of becoming a toddler is to become a child, and the point of becoming a child is to become an adult. If a baby contracted some rare disease by which they remained forever a baby, that would no longer be cute. It would be horrifyingly sad. Likewise, the point of being a Christian is to grow up into Christ our head. And just like a baby is the same person when she becomes a woman, it's not a different person, right? So too with Christianity. We will never grow into something beyond or outside the gospel message because the gospel message is the DNA of the body. We must always keep before our eyes the glorious news that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, died in the flesh. He was crucified according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and three days later he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. It is this very thing that has brought us into new birth. The new life that is given to us in our baptism is a life born of the Spirit because of the life-giving death of Jesus Christ. To switch the metaphor as our author does, repentance from dead works and faith toward God, turning away from our own attempts at life and turning toward God in submission and trust, this is the foundation of the building that is God's church, his holy temple. We're never going to live outside of this gospel message. And yet a foundation isn't a building. It's sort of like how you have to learn your ABCs in order to learn to read and write. You never leave the ABCs behind. But can you imagine opening up Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring and just reading page upon page of ABCDEFG over and over again? That's not what the ABCs are for. They're to be put into words that we can learn that have meaning. They're symbols for us. The contrast that the writer sets up here between the infant and the mature is striking. He tells us the mature are able to serve as teachers to others, directing them in the faith. They have a spiritual diet of solid food. They have faculties trained by practice to distinguish between good and evil. Whereas on the other hand, the infant has a milk-only diet and needs to learn again and again the basic truths of Jesus. The infant remains unskilled in the word of righteousness. Again, you don't need me to point this out to you, but we live in an infantile culture. Our political life, our moral vision, our social cohesion, it has all been reduced to squishy baby chubbiness. And that's just the cute side. On the other side, we can't control ourselves like babies, right? We're a society that is in the immoral equivalency of having to wear diapers. And the church has sadly for far too long mirrored this infantilism by trying to do away with virtually all of the tenacity, all of the spinach-eating, growth-facilitating practices that are necessary for being a disciple of Christ. As G.K. Chesterton so brilliantly put it, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. When you look at the preaching of the apostles, especially in the book of Acts, you can start to see how far we've fallen from the core message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is not that Jesus is here to help you find your bliss. 
Instead, hear what St. Paul told the Athenians. He says that I was, as I was wandering through your city, I saw an inscription to an unknown God. And what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives himself to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That is the apostolic message. The message of Christ's kingship should bring about deep consternation because it is a message of lordship. He created time. He created the very idea of being, which means that everything about us, all of the ways we use time and existence, will be held to account by him. None of it is actually ours. It's all his. As C.S. Lewis said in the pen of that demon screw tape, describing all the ways in which humans think they have ownership over things, as he's writing to his nephew, Wormwood, he says all the time the joke is that the word mine in its fully possessive sense, cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. In the long run, either our father, remember this is screw tape, right? Satan, our father, or the enemy, Christ, will say mine of each thing that exists, and especially of each man. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong, certainly not to them, whatever happens. At present, the enemy, Christ, says mine of everything on the pedantic legalistic ground that he made it. <laughs> the message of Christ's kingship should bring about deep consternation, and it should also bring about an implacable joy, because in submitting to his rule, we find ourselves as we were made to be, we find, as our dear friend Michael W. Smith so beautifully sang, our place in this world. <laughs> it's my gift to you. It's stuck in your head for the rest of the day. We find Jesus to be a merciful, loving, gentle, righteous, and just king. It's unnerving because we cling to our own kingdoms, but when we let go, we find that he's good. And our response to this message of his kingship should be the same as the first Christians at Pentecost. Repentance, faith, baptism, followed by a devotion to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread, which is a hint at the Eucharist liturgy, and to the prayers, which is the liturgical prayer life of the church. And it is in these habits that we will begin to grow our taste for solid food. So I have just a couple of things that I want to say to encourage us in these things. The first thing I think we need to do is practice. You can't just walk into the gym and throw up weight. Turns out. You have to make a daily practice. And similarly in following Christ, you aren't going to just magically become Christ-like overnight. Rowan Williams, who is Archbishop of Canterbury, was writing about martyrdom in the early church. And he has this line. I've said it to you several times, and it's just so true. That nobody just becomes a martyr. Martyrdom is a result of a long, prosaic process of unselfing. Today is the feast day of martyrs, St. Simon and Jude. They're the patron saints of lost causes because we're told that they were sent by Christ to go deliver the gospel to Persia. And as far as we know, they didn't get a word out before they were killed. And yet they obeyed. You're not going to become a saint overnight. You must attend to the small practices of Eucharist, daily office of prayer and scripture, personal prayer, this prosaic process of unselfing. You have to be told who you are by God and then begin to take up your cross daily and follow Christ. And in doing these practices, you will begin to realize that you are meeting Christ because he is offering himself to you. In him you live and move and have your being. And it is in these practices that you will begin to develop the skills of the saints. You will be fashioned by the creativity of the Spirit into the temple of God. But you must, as St. Peter says, for this very reason make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, for if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I encourage you as we approach Advent, a season where we again reflect, we look inward and we look outward, we wait for Christ's arrival and we realize what his arrival really means, and we seek to amend our lives, I encourage you to form new habits as you devote yourself to the apostolic teaching and the fellowship of believers, the Eucharist and the prayers. And related to this gaining skills through habit and encountering Christ through practice, I would suggest to you that we are also in desperate need of better heroes. It didn't take me much time of being in ministry to realize that for the most part, okay, not completely, but for the most part, the people in the Christian subculture talking the loudest, the people topping the best-seller lists and leading the big glitzy conference circuit 
really are not people worth emulating at all. The ability to string words together to move people emotionally is a great skill, but it's not automatically a saintly skill. And it doesn't necessarily bring about lasting change. And for all of the book selling and conference attending and church growthing that we have done, we largely have a Christian culture that is completely unskilled in the word of righteousness. And the people that we have propped up as our heroes have so often proven themselves to be mere infants, not trained in the practice of distinguishing between good and evil. We're living in a very dark time. We need to pray for the Jewish community in this country because they are afraid. And we could point our finger at so many other places, and yet we're the ones with the birthright that we have sold for a bowl of porridge. No more. We must get serious about the kingship of Christ and what it requires of our lives. We must. This Friday, we're going to be celebrating the Feast of All Souls, which is, among other things, a recognition that we need good heroes. We need heroes worth emulating. All Souls follows on the heels of all saints, a day in which we recognize all of those saints who have names attached to them, who led such exemplary lives that we still remember their names. All Souls is the day when we recognize the countless numbers of people who lived and died in obscurity, and yet many of them lived lives worth emulating. Stop falling for the loudest people in the room. Find the people who have put on Christ. Find better heroes. Read about the saints about nameless slave girls who face martyrdom by wild beasts with serenity, missionaries like St. Simon and Jude who traveled a dangerous territory to take the news of Christ's kingship to people who were very different than themselves. Consider the priests and deacons and nuns and monks, lay people who devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching, the Eucharist, the life of prayer, and find people who spent their life seeking the vision of God and be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the kingdom. We live in a time where our cultural heroes have pretty much all failed us. From Bill Clinton to Bill Cosby, I mean, even Martha Stewart went to prison. What? You are the people of God. The subjects and citizens of King Jesus. And I'm going to ask you again, what are you doing with your baptism? You have been transferred out of the kingdom of the blind, where the darkness reigns, into the kingdom of his glorious light. What are you doing with your baptism? 
Find heroes to pattern your life after so that when you arrive at the banqueting table of Christ, you can with joy say, pass the bourbon and brisket instead of got milk. We don't want to be babies when Christ comes back. Develop a taste for the real meal. Jesus has prepared a race for us. And it's a race that he himself has, has run, and he invites us to feel his pleasure as our bodies move in this race toward his kingdom. He's prepared a feast for us, and he invites us to train our taste buds to enjoy the rich, complex flavors of life in him. Don't shrink back. Don't be sluggish. Don't be dull. Shake off the sin that so easily entangles you and give yourself over fully to this King. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.